0: I'm going to start in chapter 19, verse 1, and read through uh, chapter 20, verse 21, and this section goes together. And it says this, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice, and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bring in Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest He break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying... nor covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. God's Word from Exodus 19 and 20. This section of Scripture covers Um, and introduces to us the the covenant, the Sinai Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant because it's given through Moses. This covenant looms very large in Scripture. Um, It's very important. It's really important to understand this covenant. It's almost as important to us now who are no longer under this covenant. Uh, If we are believers, we are under the covenant through Christ. The better covenant. But it's almost as important for us as, as it was for them. And so we will take some time today and actually in the weeks following to dig into this covenant, to learn about it as we go through chapters 19 through 40. At times we'll slow down, at times we'll cover large swaths of these chapters. But I believe we'll be greatly helped as we learn about God and what it means to be His people. What I want to do today is just introduce this idea of covenant and then draw three important lessons that are here in the text. Uh, to summarize, what I want to say is that we, uh, that this text teaches us that we relate to God in covenant as we do three things. We depend on His grace, we fear Him appropriately, and we obey Him sincerely. That's what we see in the text, and these truths are still true for us under the new covenant. So first, we depend on His grace. Um, uh, we see this throughout this section. Before I talk about that, actually, let me just cover a little bit about covenant. Um, covenant is not a word that we use a lot. It sounds kind of formal and foreign to us. But we all live, actually, in covenant. Covenant is a word just, that just basically means a contract, a formal contract, a formal agreement of some sort. There can be informal covenants, too, actually, and we live under these. Um, we all, as humans, live under some sort of social contract. Um, there are uh, these agreements, whether explicit or implicit, that we have. Certainly marriage is a covenant. It's a contract. And there are expectations and benefits, right? And there's a term of service and so forth. Um, family is an implicit covenant. We understand kind of how we work this. with The parents' obligations, the children's obligations, and, and what it's about. Uh, citizenship is a covenant. Um, we as citizens have obligations. The The country has obligations to us. We live in this relationship. Um, There's really uh, covenants of sorts, social contracts, in in all sorts of relationships. If you're a student, there's a social contract around being a student and how you relate to a teacher. If you're employed, there's a social contract around how you relate as employer and employee. And these really all could be called covenants. A covenant is just a a formalized uh, agreement where there are benefits, and obligations, and, and there are terms of service. So the Bible's full of these. And there are uh, some very important covenants in the Scriptures. Um, there are six very important ones. Uh, one would be the covenant with Adam and Eve, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses that we're talking about, and the covenant with David, and of course the covenant through Christ, the ultimate covenant that fulfills them all. Some of these covenants, uh, in particular the covenant through Christ, is a unilateral covenant. And in Abraham's covenant, there are certain aspects of that as well that are unilateral. And what unilateral means is that there's one-way obligation. Uh, So it's not a two-way obligation. Uh, In the covenant through Christ, uh, Jesus has fulfilled all the obligations. And He offers us the benefits freely. It's amazing. Uh, And we are... To simply receive that, we turn away from other options and we receive that, but, the, but He is the one who provides uh, the obligations and the benefits. Other covenants in Scripture are bilateral. So there's two parties who owe each other something. Um, and so this covenant, the covenant at Sinai, is a bilateral covenant. There are uh, blessings from God, but there are obligations as well. Um, that's important to understand. The covenant through Moses is not the new covenant. Covenant through Moses is not the covenant through Christ. It's not uh, that covenant in just another form. It is a different covenant. And in it, of course, it points to Christ. And in it, we learn about God. Um, But there's a better covenant that that must come, and that's the covenant through Christ. We'll we'll touch on that as we go. All these covenants, though, whether they're unilateral or bilateral, whether they're entirely a gift or there are obligations to it in Scripture, they're all full of God's grace. That's important to understand. None of them are built on you simply earning and doing everything. They all are built on God's grace. So, the first covenant, uh, the arrangement with Adam and Eve, um, maybe not a formal covenant like some of the others, but it is a a contract, and and there are blessings and obligations. Um, It's full of grace, because God made Adam and Eve. God made the earth. God gave them everything they needed in the garden. They had every provision um, to, and they had every means to succeed in their covenant, because God had been so gracious. And so the, the, the foundation of His requirements in that covenant, that contract, uh, is really His grace, His blessing. We see that elsewhere in Scripture, of course, throughout all the major covenants. Noah, Noah gets rescued. Noah gets blessed. God instructs Noah. He preserves Noah. And now he preserves humanity and all the, all the creatures, all the animals as well. And then he makes this covenant with Noah saying, I no longer will flood the earth. It's a gracious covenant. The covenant with Abraham, of course, is gracious too. You can go back into Genesis and see that where uh, the promise is entirely gracious in the beginning. He, he promises Abraham that he's going to bless him and make his descendants as, as numerous as the stars and the sand on the seashore, which basically means innumerable beyond comprehension, and you're going to bless the whole earth. He promises that to Abraham, and Abraham's obligation is nil. He simply receives it. And when the covenant is made, Abraham's asleep, actually. And so it's gracious. Uh, the covenant with David. David's promise to, to have a descendant on the throne uh, over God's people forever. It's, it's full of grace because God had been good to David, and God gave this extravagant promise that wasn't earned by David. And certainly the covenant through Christ, is full of grace. It's important to see this. It's important to get it because sometimes in hearing the law, looking through the Ten Commandments and and looking at the Mosaic Covenant, and then of course looking through the things we're called to in the New Testament and the New Covenant, we might miss or, or, or not see just how amazingly gracious God is in all this. And this covenant at Sinai is based on grace as well. Because before God says, I want you to do this, He says to them in verse 4 of chapter 19, if you could project this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. God was the one who graciously intervened and rescued them from the Egyptians. And God was the one who was with them all along. Even though they went through difficulty in the, in the wilderness, He was there waiting to answer their prayers. Trying to teach them to wait on Him and to trust Him and to cry out to Him. But He, would, he never abandoned them. He was with them. He was bearing them on eagle's wings. This speaks, of course, what a, uh, to what a parent eagle does for an eaglet as it learns to fly. They come under it and they support it. And it gets to fly on the back of its parent. And so God... Is that eagle for us, for God's people, for the people of Israel at this time. And then before he introduces the commandments, what does he say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm your God. I've acted for you. I've been gracious to you. And now as a result, I call you to respond to me and to live in this covenant. So the ground here is grace. And by the way, even though the Sinai covenant was a bilateral covenant, it had obligations, there was law, and the law had to be upheld. It was never intended to be taken in and of itself as something that we could simply just fulfill our obligation and get everything we need from God. The law is supposed to function. This this covenant is supposed to function in a way in its law giving that would drive us and drive Israel to their need for God's grace and forgiveness. It's sad that it was misunderstood, misconstrued, and, and didn't operate the way it was intended to. How do I know that? How do I know how it was intended to operate? Well, the New Testament teaches us this. Romans chapter three twenty. Paul is speaking of the new covenant. And of course, people have the question like, well, what about the old covenant? What about all that stuff, Paul? Are you just throwing that out? And so Paul uses uh, the word the law to speak of the Mosaic covenant. And he says in chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. The law is given to expose our inability to keep the law. And we're going to see actually, it didn't take many chapters for them to utterly fail. And so the law is given. The law is good. It's right. There's nothing in the law that's wrong. Or even complicated, right? It all is good stuff. Makes sense. And yet, it took no time for the people of Israel, and it takes us no time to fail in our obedience. Paul says elsewhere, Galatians chapter 3, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law, the Mosaic Covenant, is meant to keep the people of God until Christ appears in time, but also in a, a uh, truth way to kind of usher us in truth to our need for a Savior. So the Old Testament saints, as they understood these things, would have seen, I can't keep the law. I need rescue. And so the law, the covenant, points to Jesus, points to grace. We'll, we'll, hit, we'll hit on that more as we go. But that's important to get. Um, God is a God of grace. It's who He is. It's fundamental to His character. He is gracious. And He loves to be gracious. And the grace of God gets fully expressed, of course, in the New Covenant. And and this New Covenant, through Christ, through His work on our behalf, His righteous life, He fulfills the obligations uh, given to mankind in His righteousness, then offers that up as a sacrifice in our place on the cross, so that we can be counted righteous in Him, and then pays for our sins in this amazing exchange on the cross so that we get His righteousness. He gets our sin. He dies in our place. He rises again victorious over sin and death. So in this new covenant, it's all of grace. And all we need do is receive it. Turn away. Repent. Turn away from our own ways and our own schemes, our own contracts that we would want to make to rely on His alone by grace. And so Ephesians 2.8.9 can say, for by grace you have been saved. Of course, speaking of this new covenant. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Later on in Romans 3, or elsewhere in Romans 3, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God How? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone fails to follow His law and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God is a gracious God. He's always been this way and all the covenants are grounded on His grace and the new covenant is the ultimate expression of this grace and He's always intended for us to run to Him for His grace. And it's important for us to understand this is who God is. God is not the ever-demanding boss or father always there looking for you to mess up. He's not Ebenezer Scrooge yelling bah humbug at everything you do. He's not there always angry, never satisfied. He is holy, but He's gracious. And He longs that we would run to Him for forgiveness. He loves to be gracious. That's why He made the world. This world is all of grace. He is ever-giving. God was not in a place where He somehow had an obligation to make the world. He wasn't feeling lonely. He, he just w- wasn't on like a, a, you know, a creation kick or something. He, he didn't need to do what He did. But because of who He is, His his. Basic nature. He's a giving, generous God. He gives. He pours out. He blesses. He made the world. And we learn in Scripture that before the world was made, He intended to rescue undeserving sinners like you and like me. This comes from His very heart, the very core of who He is. He's gracious. And so His plan to create, His plan to rescue and recreate, all come out of His character of graciousness. That is so important to get. And I don't know why, but I struggle with it. I struggle with understanding Him as fundamentally gracious. I often think that it's just kind of plan B. you know. And I, and I wonder sometimes, maybe it's because I'm that way a little bit at times. Or we are that way. You know what I mean? We, we, we don't prefer to be gracious. Because grace means you have to forgive somebody, right? And grace means you have to put up with somebody. And would rather not have to be put out would rather just they not be a, a problem. would rather they just not do anything that we have to forgive, right? And so we do grace as kind of a plan B because it's, I mean, if I'm not gracious to them, then they're, they're not going to be gracious to me and I don't have a right to expect them to be gracious to me if I'm not gracious to them. That's kind of how we operate. But that's not how God is. God is gracious from his heart, from who he is. He loves to be gracious. He loves to give and he loves to forgive. And receive us and be with us. He's not like that demanding boss or father or or like you at times. He's very different. He's gracious. That's so important to get. And this covenant with Moses and the covenant with Christ won't make sense to you if you don't understand that. So, ask Him to help you. Tell Him you're sorry for seeing Him otherwise. Ask Him to help you understand His grace. So, living in covenant with God, we must depend on His grace. We must also fear Him appropriately. This passage is is full of things that are about fear. and We'll dig into it. And these two things go together. Grace, a gracious person and a person who demands respect. And, And it's fear in that sense. Fearing God, being deeply reverent and respectful, understanding who He is. They go together. And I think we see that, right? We see that in people that are both powerfully, both powerful and good. Um, I think of good dads, good parents. I think some of the coaches I had in high school, they were, they were in charge of me, but they were good, good people. I think of pastors I've known. I think of certain world leaders. I think of actually um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia as he describes Aslan, the great lion who represents Christ. And in the story, there's a, a really interesting interaction. You can put that picture up, uh, where Susan and her siblings are asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, and they don't quite get who he is, and, and, and this is how it goes. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, Mr. Beaver says. Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And just as these things go together in the story, they go together in Scripture. God is worthy of our respect and our holy fear. And He's also amazingly gracious. They they go together. So what He's doing here in chapters 19 and 20 with His people is He's seeking to instill in them a proper fear, appropriate fear. And you guys saw that, right? As we read through, it talked about this mountain. And it talked about this mountain with the smoke rising up like a kiln, right? It's, and there's thunder and lightning going on. There's a loud trumpet blast. Um, there, it's, the mountain is shaking. So this is, this is all these things. This is a thunderstorm with lightning. And this is an earthquake all coming together. Um, it's a black sky, a storm. Just think of those certain things. I mean, how terrifying it must have been. Have you ever been in a thunderstorm and had a lightning bolt hit nearby you? I've had it happen a couple times. It is petrifying, right? And you can't help but like jump and scream when it happens and, and tremble. Um, so that's what's going on here. But it's not just that. Have you ever been around a, an ominous black sky? Have you ever been, seen a tornado? Uh, as a kid, I... Was terrified by that scene in The Wizard of Oz in the beginning, and I actually rewatched it this week, and had the same feeling, like whoa, where the sky is dark and that tornado comes in, and, and and that's what's going on here. There's a dark sky. There's a the smoke is rising up like a kiln. And and have you ever been in an earthquake? From what I, I've never been in one that I detected. I guess I I, I know I've been in ones because afterwards they they say so. But if you live in a place like you know Chile or California, you know it's terrifying. Well. All of those are happening here together. As they're before the mountain. And this section is bookended by it. So it starts out in the beginning where God says um, to Moses v- chapter 19 verse 9 Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So God says I'm going to come. I'm going I'm to make myself known through a thick cloud. And I'm going to speak. Actually the people hear him speak in their Terrified. They hear God's voice as He communicates with Moses. And then at the end of this section, after the commandments are given as they hear from God, Moses says to them, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. So this fearful sight before the mountain, I mean, it's terrifying, but is it because God just gets His jollies out of scaring humans? No. No. Because He's good. And He deserves respect. And He deserves us fearing Him appropriately. He wants us to recognize that He is the most powerful one. And He is in charge. And He knows better. It's kind of like a parent, right? If you're a good parent, you have to teach your kids respect for you. If you want to keep your kids from running out in the street and getting hit by a car, you have to teach them to respect your word, right? You're not a good parent if you don't do that. If you just kind of sit down and you have a one-on-one talk, you know, like, hey, here's some options. You know, you can run on the street or you can nod and try to convince them. You know, a little kid's just not going to understand that. You have to be a good parent and say, look, when I say come, you listen to me. When I'm holding your hand and I say be still, you need to do that for your own good to protect us. And this is what God's about. God didn't need to intimidate the people of Israel for His own sake. But for their sake, He does. And for our sake, by the way, He does as well. This is still the same. He's still to be feared appropriately. Though we live under grace in this amazing covenant in Christ, God is still holy and in charge. And so, the writer of Hebrews, writing to Christians, speaks of actually what went on in Exodus and applies it to the day. And we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken that we can stand there. And what this passage is teaching us is understand that there's no other safe ground anywhere. And so the appropriate fear of God should drive us to to run to Him for His grace and live in relationship with Him and not try to stand on our own. That's part of what this crisis with the coronavirus is about. It's Hebrews 12 shaking going on, right? It's a shaking where we realize, you know what? There's no stability outside of what God provides. And that should shake us. And it should make us run to Him and find in Him forgiveness and and to walk in His ways. We should be scared if we realize what this means apart from God. Yet we should also understand that He is a good Father. He loves us. and He's gracious. He wants us to run to Him. Fearing Him appropriately is part of living in relationship with Him. And finally, relatively quickly, obeying Him sincerely. Obey Him sincerely. This is part of living in relationship with Him. And so He gives commandments here in this section. We're going to talk more in detail about these commandments later in another message. But He calls them to obedience. He calls them to respond to Him. He calls them to do the things that are right and good, do the things that he loves. And if we think about it, that, of course, happens in every relationship, right? If you're going to have a relationship with somebody, if you're going to have a friendship with somebody, you're going to do the things they like, they're going to do the things that you like. Now, of course, in a human friendship, it's not everything. You don't share everything in common. But your friendship is based on the fact that you like to do things that make each other happy. It's part of any relationship that there are rules and values that we reinforce or not, and, and, and that's how it works, right? I mean, I, I'm grateful for my relationship with my wife. We share so many things in common. Uh, values, loving God the church, people, loving, uh, having the same sense of humor, outdoors, different things, loving New England, all these things we share together. Of course, loving our kids um, and our extended families. But we share those together and and that builds our relationship. And and thus it is, and even more so, with God. If we're going to have a relationship with God, it means loving what He loves. And what does He love? He loves things like truth, goodness, peace, love, humble service, true beauty, purity, holiness, kindness, patience, so many other things. And so He gives us commands. And He calls His people here under the Mosaic Covenant to obedience, to obey Him. Obeying God matters. It's part of how we relate to Him. And in the Mosaic Covenant, there's a promise with it as well. He says in chapter 19, verses 5-6, through Now therefore, if you will obey, indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God promises that if they keep the covenant, if they obey His voice, they will be a treasured possession among all the earth. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there's blessing in this obedience. And actually obedience is required of them. We're going to learn more as we go. If they disobey, they're going to lose the benefits of the covenant. And all these commandments are good. They all make sense. It's actually a fantastic deal because they're required to do things that are actually not that complicated. They're all good. They're all good morals. It's all, they're all about how to love God and love one another. And the, and the result is that God's going to bless them, make them a successful nation, keep them healthy and prosperous, make them a light to the world. It's a great arrangement. But it only takes couple chapters for them to fail. And again, as I said before, it only takes us a little while to fail. And that's part of the intention that this covenant reveals their need for rescue, their need for grace, their need for help from the Lord, their need of a better covenant ultimately. And God has provided that better covenant through Christ. Thank God. Christ is our righteousness. Christ fulfilled the law. Christ was righteous in His life and fulfilled all those obligations perfectly. And then offered Himself for us. So those conditions, all the conditions that would be given to mankind, Christ is fulfilled. And He has offered that in our place. We are credited with His righteousness through faith. Our sins are credited to Him. He pays for them. Rises again. Victorious over sin and death. But then there's something else that happens. When the Holy Spirit brings these truths to us, He creates new life in us. And now the law of God is no longer external. But it becomes internal. God does something better with the law. It goes from being a written law that's external to something in our hearts. And He promised this early in Jeremiah. He says, speaking of this old covenant and the new one, He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What good news! You see, in the new covenant, it's not external, it doesn't loom over us. Christ has fulfilled our righteousness. We are forgiven. We're welcomed into the family. And it doesn't end there though because now there's in our hearts new life. And there's a heart in every believer that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Though we struggle, though sin remains, until we go to be with the Lord, we will struggle and be tempted. Yet there's a new power in us that is real and active and defines us. It's the law of God in our hearts. Motivating us by the power of the Spirit to love Him and to obey Him. Obedience matters. And I thank God that He puts it in our hearts. And what this means for the believer is that you'll never be happy unless you're obeying God. The most miserable human is the human that's received the law in their heart and yet wanders from it. Because it's who you are. It's your identity. It's in your heart. You're made to love God and to love others and to grow more and more in that. More and more like Jesus. So obedience is a joy. Obedience is freedom. Obedience is glory. Obedience by the power of the Spirit because the law is in our hearts. New life. It's great. We should never diminish obedience. We should never diminish the function of the law in showing us what obedience looks like. The law itself New Testament has more commands than the Old Testament. The law itself in the New Testament is the detailing of love. And we are called to this. And so in conclusion, we are called to live in covenant relationship with God. We are to depend on His grace, fear Him appropriately, and obey Him sincerely. And so just before we transition to communion, let me ask you to just take a minute and ask yourself... Is there one of these aspects that you need to address? Maybe you need to stop thinking that God is a miser looking for you to fail, to understand he is gracious. Maybe you need to think, on the other hand, he's not, stop thinking he's a pushover, some sort of senile Santa Claus, and realize that instead he is like Aslan. He's not a tame lion. He's good, but he's to be feared. Maybe you need to realize that though we are free from the law as a condition for the covenant, through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, nevertheless, obedience matters. And we're called to obedience. Let's just take a minute before we transition to uh, song and then communion to consider one of these three aspects and how God might want to address us.